Good morning. How many of you are excited to be back? Well, a few of you, yeah. You can't get what you get at Cedarville anyplace else though, right? I mean, worship like that, it's pretty amazing. I have to admit, I missed you guys, but I don't miss the Ohio weather. How many of you went somewhere warm this spring break? Raise your hand if you went warm. Yeah, I went, I went to Florida. I decided to take a vacation and get a break, so we went to Disney World. I don't recommend that. But I had a great time with the kids. They were amazing and fun. But I'm not the only one that went to Florida. How many of the rest of you went to Florida? All right. In fact, we had people on mission trips all over the world. And so if you went on a mission trip and have made it back by now, will you stand up? Come on, stand up. Awesome. We still, have, we still have some that haven't made it back yet. They're still on their way back. I've loved watching the reports, getting the emails, seeing Facebook in different ways that you've been reporting out about that. I also really enjoyed watching our sports teams, either via the text message. And if you signed up for those text messages, I hope you're on a free text plan because they came in abundantly, didn't they? We were playing all over the place. So we had our tennis team playing and doing great. We had our guys' baseball team that won, I think, eight games over spring break. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Our girls' basketball team lost a heartbreaking game in overtime uh, down in the tournament. And so they played incredibly hard. I was able to watch that one online. They had on video. And so kudos to them for a great season. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, women's softball went 12, yeah, went 12 and 3 during spring break. And so that deserves a round of applause. I mean, if for no other reason, that's 15 games. So they're all asleep somewhere, I would suspect. I'm just kidding. They're, they're here. They're here. But I, I would be tired if I played 15 games in a week. And so, well done. Uh, Excited to be back. This is the passage that is probably the hardest passage in the entire New Testament to talk about. And we're talking about it today. So it's been really nice being your president. I'll be looking for a new job after I get through here. Just kidding. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're just going to have fun, look at the text, talk about what the text says. You got to laugh as you go through some of the difficult texts. So I've got some humor spots where I'll either try to make it funny or you'll just groan and say, nice attempt, but that didn't work. Either way, it'll be okay because it'll give you some comic relief in the middle of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now let me set this thing up for you. We have walked through in the previous weeks, chapters 8 through 10. If you'll remember on chapters 8 through 10, we talked about the stumbling block. Starts in chapter 8, where he talks about the stumbling block argument, how not to be a stumbling block before your brother, to consider others before yourself. Chapter 9, he talks about how he gave up certain liberties in order that he would not be a stumbling block to others. Chapter 10, he comes back. He talks about the idolatry that had taken place. He talks about giving that up. And then he concludes chapter 10 with do all to the glory of God. So he has taught us three basic principles there in 8 through 10. Number one, consider the weaker brother. Number two, make sure that you're not a stumbling block to a weaker brother. 
because you don't want to cause them to sin because Christ came to deliver us from sin, not to cause people to sin. So we need to keep that in mind with our own actions and sometimes give up our own liberties in order not to cause others to stumble. And then the third thing he taught us is do everything to the glory of God. In chapter 11, he makes a transition. That transition is going to turn to what happens in the local church. In this passage today, it's on head coverings. It's on the proper way for men and women to worship, and it's one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. There have been complete books written on one word in these 16 verses. That should tell you I'm not going to be able to cover it all completely in the next 30 minutes. But we're going to try to walk through, get the main ideas. I'm going to point you to some resources if you want to do further study on this particular passage. After head coverings, in the second half of chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Supper. After he talks about the Lord's Supper, we turn to gifts. And then after the gifts is a chapter on love. And then we get to tongues, which is another controversial passage. And then he concludes with the resurrection. But 11 through 14 talks about church order and how we should worship in the church. So we're beginning that section today. This builds off of 8 through 10, though. You consider others. As you're considering others, you do everything to the glory of God. And as you do both of those things, you make sure your behavior does not cause others to stumble. And in that section then is 12 through 14 on our behavior in a local church. So you've got to make sure that you have that in context. Now, before we read it today, I know some of you have to leave. You have to go to work at 1030. You have to do things like that. I don't want you to get caught up halfway in the middle of this and then completely miss what I'm trying to say at the end, because it's important you get it all. And so I'm going to give you a little summary of what we're going to walk through before we read the text. We're in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to read verses 2 through 16. Here's the summary. Verse 2 gives you an introduction to a new section. It actually discusses more than just through verse 16, but it brings you forward with a commendation that Paul gives. In verse 3, we're going to get a theological principle. That theological principle is headship. And then he's going to walk through and explain that as he moves farther down. In verse 3b, the very last portion, he mentions the Trinity. In verses 4 through 6, he's going to mention the specific problems of head coverings. But head coverings is not the main point of the issue of this passage. That's the cultural application of this passage. The main theological premise is headship or that we are created with equality yet with a difference of roles. In verses 7 through 10, he gives us an argument from creation. In verses 11 and 12, he puts a qualification on there about our interdependence, meaning that we have to have each other. That's an obvious statement, but he does that so that you can't abuse this passage, again, pointing back to equality. And then he comes to verses 13 through 15, where he makes an argument from nature. After he makes that argument from nature, he concludes in verse 16 with an appeal to the apostles and the church and a recognition that some are going to be contentious and not like what he had to say in the previous verses. We operate with the presupposition of inerrancy. And so what I tell you today is not something I wrote, I made up, or that I started. I'm just going to preach to you what the text says. We'll talk about what the text says. We'll walk through what the text says. And at that point, then we can discuss it uh, otherwise. Let me give you this. And then I'll read through the text. Let's see if I can get it to work here. We got it up there. There's your outline. I should have popped that up there already. But there's your outline. And so you get the way it walks through there. Here's the point I want you to get. This is our passage. There's a key word in here that's very difficult, and an entire book has been written on how to define it. It's the word head. 
kephale in the original language as to whether it means source or authority. You see how many times it shows up in this passage and there's debate about what it means. That's why this passage is so controversial. There's another key word that you need to notice as we read through this passage. That's man or husband, which is in this passage 14 different times. So if somebody wants to tell you this passage is only about women or only about head coverings, they're missing the repetition that's in the passage here. And it is about women or the wife as well, which is in the passage about 16 times, depending on your translation. And so based off of all of those, now let's read the text. And if you will, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. It says, Now I commend you, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is in the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Dear Lord, as we look at what your word says today, I pray that you would just help me to be clear in what I say. I pray that your spirit would enlighten us as to what this passage has to say to us today. And I pray that you would be lifted up and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so you have all now figured out why this is one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture and where there are landmines all through it that I could step on. Here's what is really difficult about this passage that I want to make sure you get before you, you have to, to go off and do another thing or before you get your mind wondering. There's two important principles here that you have to get right up front. Number one, there are cultural applications of a theological principle in this text. The theological principle is in verse three. That principle is the fact that Christ is the head of man Man is the head of the wife. God is the head of Christ. That's your theological principle. Everything else flows from that in this particular passage. Now, some of you are already sitting there saying, I don't like that. I get it. Walk through it. Hang in there with me, okay? That's your principle. The cultural application of that is head coverings, long hair, short hair, things of that nature. And so we can't take a cultural application and make that timeless because it doesn't work. You end up in a society where women have to come to school wearing skirts, right? 
that was here 30 years ago, right? And it's based off of an Old Testament verse where it says a woman should not dress like a man. And so at that point, every woman needs to wear a skirt. And some of you are worried that we're going to go back to that. Here's the deal. When that Old Testament passage was written, written, it was the guys that wore the dresses. Have you ever thought about that fact? It wasn't the girls that wore the dresses. And so that was a cultural issue. That's not a gospel issue. And here, as we look at the head coverings or the length of your hair, it's a cultural issue. It's not a gospel issue. And so then some people want to say, okay, well, then throw the whole passage out. But that's not okay because we have to look at the theological principle and we have to separate the cultural application from it. The theological principle is going to be tied to creation. The cultural application is not. And so in other verses, like in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3, you'll see principles that are tied to creation. It's important to note that. We don't keep the cultural application. We keep the theological principle. And you have to be able to separate the two to have a good understanding of how to interpret Scripture. That's what makes this passage so difficult. That's why we're going to try to walk through it. All right. I've given you a short summary. I've given you the main idea of the text. I want to give you four different teams. All right? Four different teams. Here is the first team, feminism. All right? We're not a fan of that team. That team doesn't believe in the Bible. That team rejects the authority of Scripture, rejects inerrancy. And I have a quote for you up here to give you a snapshot of that team. In radical feminism, Sheila Cronin says these words. Since marriage constitutes slavery for women, it is clear that the women's movement must concentrate on attacking this institution. Freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. We don't agree with that statement. The Bible doesn't agree with that statement. But that's one team in the gender role debate that's playing on the field. There's another team that's playing on the field. It's called egalitarianism. Summary, it would say... Nothing less than complete equality in essence and in roles will do. That's it. Nothing less. A motto might be, and I'm, I'm just having fun here, so don't get mad if you're out there and you say, he's poking fun at us. Anything you can do, we can do better. That could be the motto. That might work. Paul Jewett, in one of the books writing for egalitarianism, man as male and female, actually says Paul is wrong. When he comes to these difficult passages like this, he just comes straight out and he says Paul's wrong. That's how he explains some of these difficult passages. William Webb has a trajectory or redemptive principled hermeneutic. And in that hermeneutic, he'll say that the Old Testament presents things that are no longer true in the New Testament. The New Testament then, we move forward. And as we move forward, we keep getting better. And so these cultural issues don't apply anymore. We move forward, we look at them and they're different. And so we can't go back and look at what Paul had to say. A cultural analysis to say it's just about culture. We don't live in that culture, so it doesn't apply. Or the lens of Galatians 3.28 is how they would interpret all of Scripture. Now, there are problems with those. First of all, on Galatians 3.28, if you take any one verse of Scripture and you make that your lens through which you see all other verses of Scripture, then you've got a problem. Because Scripture should interpret Scripture, but you have to take it with equal weight, not making one verse the key verse that you look at. Here's some other problems. You can't say Paul was wrong. Because we believe in inerrancy. If it's God's word and if God revealed it to us and God cannot tell a lie, then his word is trustworthy. And we can't sit there and say that there's a problem with scripture because it's God's word and he can't tell a lie. Therefore, it's trustworthy, it's true, it's inerrant, it's infallible. And that's the reason we stand for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
We can't say that there's a trajectory hermeneutic because it undermines the moral authority of the entire New Testament. We also can't look and say these are just cultural because when we say they're cultural, we ignore the fact that these verses are tied back to creation. If Paul writing ties something all the way back to creation, he's saying this is a principle that transcends culture. It's bigger than culture. And because it's tied to creation, you can't just say, well, that was fine for Paul's time. Paul is saying that was fine for all time, and this is the way God intended it. Lastly, and this is the thing we've got to get, for the rest of your life, you've got to understand this. We don't sit in judgment on Scripture. We don't look at Scripture and say, I'm going to rip out the pages I don't like. We don't look at Scripture and say, I'm only going to obey the things I like. We let Scripture sit in judgment over us so that when we read Scripture, we allow the Spirit that lives within us to speak to us about what the text is saying so that we submit to the authority of Scripture and we allow it to influence and impact our lives. And that's why I can't hold to that position or play for that team. It's another team called complementarianism. This team believes in the position that we are equal yet different. We are equal in essence, but that from creation, God gave man and woman different roles. Both are equal. Both are created in the image of God, but both have different assignments similar to the relationship in the Trinity. I'll come back to that again. If you have questions about this passage or any other, I've got two good books that I want to recommend to you. So if you want to write the names of these books down, or if you want to write the website down, it's a good place to go to get information. Wayne Grudem has written a book called Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth. He, in this, answers the 100 most disputed questions. So if you're looking for answers on any of those different questions, it's really thick. So hopefully we don't require it for a class and make you read through it all because it's a monster textbook. But it's a great resource book to have on your shelf if you're interested in any of these topics or on your Kindle or your iPad electronically, however you choose to collect your library but you need to be collecting your library. And so you need to make sure you're a constant reader. And that's one of the things that we're gonna struggle with moving forward into the future is we're all used to reading 140 characters so we don't read complete volumes. And so we've gotta read complete volumes and encourage ourselves to read. That was for free, it has nothing to do with the sermon. All right, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Another good book, John Piper and Wayne Grudem. The website is cbmw.org. There's actually a conference on April the 8th in Louisville, Kentucky, if you're interested. That's for free too. They didn't pay me to put that up there, but in case you're interested in the topic, there you go. There's a fourth position. It's the male dominance position. This is where people wanna take these verses and they wanna twist them and they wanna turn them and they wanna say that men are better than women. They wanna say that men and women are not truly equal. They wanna say things that would repulse us. Our nation has come through a past where some of these things were said and some of these things were done and it should not be allowable in Christianity for us to have any view of a male dominance that demeans and says there's not equality. Let me tell you where it leads to. 1.2 million children will be trafficked. 80% of those are girls. 25% of all women have experienced abuse. 2.1 million women are assaulted by men each year. Now, if you're a guy out there in the room and you're a red-blooded American or international male, this should just cause your blood to boil. This should cause your inner duck dynasty to want to come out. And you should want to go grab your nearest shotgun or any friend that has one and go teach these guys some edumacation, right? Right? Here's what I want to say to you. 
Don't ever let anybody take biblical text and bring it to a position that creates a might makes right or only the strong survives mentality so that they can demean somebody else. Complete equality is what's in the Bible. And men, we need to stand and not just stand against it. We need to stand and stop it or defend it. We should not have 1.2 million children sexually trafficked in this country. That should not be possible. We should stop that. And the church needs to stand against it. We have to stand against it. 25% of all women abused is completely unacceptable for my sisters in Christ or those that I hope will become my sisters in Christ. And we must stand to stop it and say that's not right. All right, those are the four teams. We'll talk about two of those teams. Let's get into the main portion here of the passage. It says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. This is a cheesy way of Paul setting them up because he's gonna slap them around here in a little bit, okay? That's what's really happening. Because in verse 17, he comes back around and he says, I do not commend you. And he goes on and on and on. And so here, he's giving them some bad news. And so Paul's walking in and he's saying, look, I'm gonna say some nice things here because I'm getting ready to wallop you upside the head a good one, all right? And so he walks in, he says, I commend you. Here it comes, you know it. And that's what happens when you walk into your professor's office too after you've written a paper, right? Now you did some really good things here, but, and that's what he does here. He says there in verse three, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of, a, of, a, of the wife is the husband and the head of Christ is God. And so you see here in this, particular, in this particular verse, the principle, the principle of headship. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And right there, some of you go, I don't like this. That means it's not equality. But that's why Paul adds this last phrase here. The head of Christ is God. And we'll come back and we'll touch on that in just a minute. The key thing we've got to look at though is what is the meaning of the word head? There are two primary interpretations that will affect how you interpret all of this. It's gonna affect which team you play for to some degree or another. One of those interpretations is his source. That's the egalitarian position. Now, let me say to you why that is the position. They claim that source means that man came from, from woman just as a rib, just barred a rib, that's all. And so there is no differentiation in roles. Anything a man can do, a woman can do, and there's no distinguishing whatsoever. So if you claim this as source, you're gonna fall into one camp. If you claim it as authority, you're gonna fall into another camp. Here's why I can't claim it as source. To claim it as source, to say that Jesus is the source of man, how do you do that? Because in creation, God created man from the dust. So if you're gonna claim Jesus is the source, you've gotta look to redemption. You've got to look and say, well, Jesus is the new Adam. And if Jesus is the new Adam, then we are in Jesus. And because we're in Jesus in that new Adam, he's our source. The problem is this passage doesn't talk about redemption. It goes back to creation. And so that particular interpretation doesn't work. The second one is if you say that God is the source of Jesus, well, then you've got a problem with the eternality of the son. Is the son eternally the son or was there a time when he was not the son and that God the father was the source? And so you've got to answer those questions. And then third, most of the Greek lexicons do not propose source as a meaning. 
on authority. The reason I hold to this word meaning authority, and I've actually even titled the message today, Equality That Respects Authority. And so equality that respects authority gives it away, which is why I waited until now to give you my title, is because I believe this is the right interpretation. Wayne Grudem has walked through 2,336 examples in Scripture and outside of Scripture. In that, he demonstrates that this means authority. In the Septuagint, which would have been the book that Paul was familiar with, it means authority. In Paul's other writings, and especially in Ephesians 5.22, which is a parallel passage that mentions headship, it mentions husbands and wives, the word means authority. Also, it's been the position of church history uh, throughout most of history. And so for those reasons, I believe that this should be translated and should mean authority. Now, does that mean that you are not equal, men and women? No. And here's the key thing Paul does. He states that we're different, but then he also throughout the passage mentions the fact that we're equal. He gives you a little key phrase here. And the key phrase, if you'll look there in 11.3, at the end, he comes back and he says, but the head of Christ is God. So he brackets this headship teaching by saying that the head of every man is Christ on one side, the head of Christ is God on the other side. Now, would you sit here today and say that Jesus Christ is not equal to God the Father? No. You cannot say that. That's a heresy. If Jesus is not fully God, then we no longer have a triune God. If we no longer have a triune God, we no longer have a Savior that can save us because Jesus can't redeem us if he's not fully man and fully God. So you lose your Christology. You lose your doctrine of God. Jesus is fully equal with God. Do they have different roles? Yes, they do have different roles. Look at what it says there in John 10, 30. I and the Father are one. Equality. But the Father sent Jesus. Now, when you send somebody to go do something, there's a level there of a different role. There's a level there of authority that's being portrayed through that. So when you look at John 5, 37, 644, 616, 818, 1249, and 1424, you see that God sent Jesus. Jesus had no problem with that. In fact, Jesus in Philippians chapter two tells us that he humbled himself and he came in the form of a servant to this earth. He also tells us no man takes his life, but he freely lays it down. Just like when you go into that marriage relationship, you go into that voluntarily. Nobody's dragging you into that relationship. You volunteer to go into that relationship. God volunteered, Jesus volunteered to come and take on this relationship here on earth. Here's what John 12, 49 says. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 in the same book says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. And so Paul gives us a key indicator here in 11.3 of equality. There's a difference in roles, yet there's an equality of essence and an equality of substance. And so there we see the Trinity being mentioned as an example. Then we move to verse four. And in verse four, we're gonna see the Corinthian problem. Now, this is where it gets down to a specific issue that's happening in Corinth. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, how many of you were taught to take your ball cap off when you prayed? All right, anybody never taught to take a ball cap off when you pray? Raise your hand if you've never heard that before. It's the first time you've ever heard it, a couple of you. When I grew up, it didn't matter where we were or what we were doing. When it came time to pray, my hat better come off. And if my hat didn't come off, there was a gentle reminder. 
to get the hat off my head. Usually it knocked the hat off my head, which reminded me that the hat should be off my head. And so I'd leave it on the floor till after the prayer time so that I could then pick it up. I don't know if this is why my mom and dad did that or not, but they would tell me that taking my hat off during the time that we pray is a sign of respect. It's a sign of being respectful to authority. So when we go to a ball game, And they say a prayer. I've watched. You take your hat off, most of you. When you say the Pledge of Allegiance, you'll do things like put your hand over your heart because it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of authority. And so what Paul's saying here is to this specific example, and we don't know whether this is the letter that had the questions that he's responding to or if it's as it says in 1118, talking about the Lord's Supper, if he's heard this from somebody else. But he says to them, when a man prays or prophesies with his head covered, he dishonors his head. But then it says every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, what does he mean here when he says with her head uncovered? Here's the truth. I don't have a clue. There are two interpretations. It could be a shawl or it could be your hair down. Those who say that it's a shawl says that that's a sign of authority and that's what needs to happen In fact, we even have some students here that come from Mennonite churches or some other churches that still practice the head coverings. In ancient, ancient, 50 years ago, I guess, you would see people coming to church with hats on. You remember those big hats that everybody used to wear to church back in those, I don't know, little house on the prairie days, those type things. Some of you have seen that. You go to churches that still take this particular portion of this passage literally. I respect them for the fact they want to take God's word literally. But I don't think this is the eternal timeless principle. I think this is the practical application of the headship principle. It's either a shawl or it's letting their hair down. Now, why would letting the hair down be a problem? In this culture, you put your hair up and it was a sign that said, I'm not available. If you let your hair down, it was a sign that said, I'm available and looking. And Paul says, you can't do that. You especially can't do that if you're up praying or leading worship. And so he says, you have to make sure that you're respecting the authority. And that's the main point of this is to make sure you adorn yourself in a way that respects authority. In modern day times, this could be compared to a woman who wanted to go out on the town. So she put on the dress that made her look absolutely the best so that everybody would stare at her. And she took off that wedding ring and she laid that wedding ring off to the side and she went out. Now, what's she doing when she does that? She's saying, I want guys to flirt with me. Paul's saying that's unacceptable behavior. You can't do that. That disrespects your head and it disrespects your own person and it also disrespects your husband. And so here what he says is if she disrespects her head, it's the same as if her head were shaven. Perhaps alluding back to an Old Testament passage where it talks about if you were in adultery, your head would be shaven or to a prostitute of some sort. In verse six, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. Now, if you're here and you have short hair and you're female, this doesn't mean that today that that's a problem for you. This is a cultural issue. And so I'm not saying everybody needs to grow their hair out really long, although I do really like long hair. I mean, I think it's beautiful. I think girls with long hair, I mean, that's just God's giving you a blessing there. So I, I will grow the hair out. I'm just saying. I'm happily married, though, so don't do it for me. All right. My wife has long hair. Now you know why she has long hair, because I really like her long hair. It's pretty. I'm going to stop before I get fired. (laughs) But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. In verse 7, because I'm going to get out of this one and start moving on to the next one. 
All right. Well, yeah, I got one other problem I got to fish through here. Yeah, this one's controversial too. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate that. What does he mean when he says prophesy? Oh, that's a problem, huh? Well, New Testament's not the same as the Old Testament. If you prophesied in the Old Testament, it was false, you got killed. All right? Short job if you weren't good at it, okay? In the New Testament, it means something entirely different. In the New Testament, you'll see distinguishing between the gifts of teaching and the gifts of prophecy. So particularly in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians that we're coming to 12, coming right up, there's a differentiation between the gift of prophecy and the gift of teaching. And in Ephesians 4, we know this is not preaching because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Agabus, when it talks about prophecy, was spontaneous revelations. You can see that in Acts 11, 27, 28, and 21, 10, and 11. So my best attempt to explain what prophecy was that was occurring in this time is a spontaneous revelation from God that was put out, and it was to be tested, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14. And in 1 Corinthians 14, he tells us that that testing, in that testing, he says the women are to be silent. Now, now you may not like that. That's what he says in verse 14, uh, chapter 14. So here's the deal though. That chapter 14 command for women to be silent is not in everything. He's not saying you can't do anything. In this chapter, he's saying pray. He's saying prophesy. And so what does that mean for us? That means we're gonna have great godly ladies up here leading our worship teams like we had today with one voice. And didn't they do a great job? We're gonna have testimonies. We're gonna hear, and also this probably has the connotation there of where you pull somebody aside and you have a theological conversation in the home and hospitality is taking place and the woman speaks or says something that she feels like God has laid on her heart. And if you come to my house and spout some theological heresy, you better be ready because I'm probably not gonna be the first one to jump on you. It's gonna be my wife. She's gonna jump in there and start telling you what the Bible has to say because she knows the word. And that's one of the things that makes her so attractive alongside her long hair. And so you see what it's talking about here is prophecy, not necessarily teaching. So Paul's not being inconsistent. And he's saying here, women, use your gifts, but use them under the right authority in the right way for God's glory. And that's all he's trying to get to here. And so then he moves on from creating problems for every preacher in every church across this country to a different section that creates more problems for every preacher in every church across the country. Arguments from creation. Let's look what he does here. As he moves through the text, he says in verse seven, for man ought not to have his head covered since he is in the image and the glory of God. But woman is in the glory of man. Now notice the word that's not there is image. Because it's important for us to note that male and female are in the image and the likeness of God. And as we are in the image and likeness of God, we are equal and we are equal in salvation and Galatians 3.28 tells us that. But it also says here, and we have to take note of what the scripture says, that A woman is the glory of man. In verse eight, for man was not made from woman, but woman was made from man. And if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard these words where it says he was taken from a rib, not from a foot that the man could lord over her, not from a bone from the head so that she could lord over him, but from a rib so that she would be a partner by the side. And I think that's good advice. I don't know that that's in the text anywhere here, but it says that she was made from him. God could have made us at the same time. He made animals at the same time, but instead he took dust of the earth to make man. He made woman from man. He's indicating there a different differentiation in roles. He additionally says that man was not created for woman, but that woman was created for man as a helper. 
Now, don't think that that is a subordinate issue because the Holy Spirit is called to be a helper. The Holy Spirit is equal with God, but has a different role or a different aspect. And so that's what he's teaching here. And because time is going on, I've got to move through this really quickly. And so look at what he says in verse 10. He says, that is why the wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Now, symbol is not in the Greek, but this Greek construction is so difficult that symbol is used by most translators because what they're trying to get across is it's your proper attitude, it's your proper dress that respects authority. And so it's an equality that respects authority. And then it says, because of the angels, we don't have a clue what this means. Tertullian thought it meant that the angels were looking in and the women were scantily clad and they began to lust after the women. Well, Tertullian's got some crazy views anyway. Augustine and others said it's because the angels were in charge of worship and they helped be involved in the order of worship and this would help the angels to worship better. Frankly, we don't know. Some have proposed that angels here should be translated messengers. It's others coming from other churches who come into these churches and they see the problems and it causes them to stumble. And so it goes back to eight through 10 and says, don't do this because of the messengers messengers. Paul moves on. Nevertheless, the woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Here's your interdependence. And here's what Paul is saying. This is not going to create a separation because we both have to rely on each other. How many of you out there have a mother? You're relying on a woman. How many of you out there have a father? You're relying on a man. There's an interdependence that God has created so that we can have a reciprocal relationship that can display the Trinity and display the gospel. And that's the whole purpose of what marriage is supposed to be about and what we're trying to get to. And he again argues here and he says, all things are from God. Now I gotta take a moment and hit this. All things are from God. Men are from God. Women are from God. Black people are from God. White people are from God. Red, yellow, black, and white. We are, he is precious in his sight. Here's the deal that I want to get across to you. There is absolutely no room for racism in the kingdom of God anywhere, and especially not at Cedarville University. So faculty, staff, students, hear me well. We will not tolerate racism of any kind. Economic, national, color, I don't care what it is, it will not be tolerated. You want to get on my bad side or see if I've conquered that temper I displayed on a week in spring break? You show racism, you're going to find out I hadn't completely conquered it, okay? We're not going to tolerate it. Everybody should be treated as equal because we are equal in God and equal before God. So will you be with me on making sure that happens? And if it doesn't happen, you come make sure I know about it. Are you with me on that? That should be a good amen or something. Come on, help me out. All right, he moves in verse 13 and he begins with an argument from nature. I gotta move quickly. I know I'm going fast. I gotta get you done and get out of here. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? Anybody in the room with long hair getting really uncomfortable right about now? Here, yeah, I got one guy. Here you go. Here's your verse. The Nazarites, Samson had long hair and it's in Judges 13, 5. There you go. The Spartan men had long hair. We wouldn't call them feminized guys, would we? They went down to their shoulders. They're pretty bad dudes. What Paul's saying here is that in this culture, you were confusing the sexes and the guys were looking like ladies. Guys don't look like ladies. It's not cool. It's not attractive. Men, be men. Women, be women. Don't confuse the two. That's what Paul's getting at here. 
So if you have long hair and you want to be a guy with long hair, have a beard like this. All right. You down with that? You want me to put it on for you? Maybe after chapel. I got, I got to roll. I don't have time. All right. You got to be a duck. Dying. Be a man. That's what he's saying. So as far as the one, so he goes on through here in verse 15, he says, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory. Amen. For her hair is given to her for her covering. And then I got to quit. Verse 16, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, anybody want to be contentious? There are. Yeah, absolutely. Paul says, well, I know I'm going to get my email inbox filled up with emails today. So if anybody wants to be contentious, we, meaning the apostles, have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. He's saying you're against all the churches. You're against the apostles. There is no practice in this. What's your practical application to this? And I've got a slide that I don't even know if I have time to get to. Here you go. It's up there for you. Equality that respects authority. God created us equal. He created us with different roles. Don't shy away from that. Rejoice in it. Do what God has called us to do. We are all under authority in one form or another. Parents, job, law, etc. I don't like it that the law tells me I can only drive. 70 miles an hour in some places. I mean, that's way too slow. I have to live under authority or get a speeding ticket. Missionaries in a Muslim context will have to struggle with this issue and what it means for them. A wedding ring is a symbol that I'm married. I'm not available. It's just a symbol. I take it off. I'm still married. But it's a symbol that says to others, that's not me. So I would say to you also, when you dress on stage at church, not so much talking about here, but talking about at church. You guys do a good job of this here, and I appreciate that fact. You should dress so that you don't attract attention to you. If your thought when you get dressed to be on stage in, in church is, I want people to look at me, get the wrong thought in mind. We direct worship to God. We don't direct worship to ourselves. So watch not just your what you wear, but your attitude about what you wear too. Let me close with this illustration because I think this brings it into focus. Murray Murdoch is sitting right down here in the front. He is an icon at Cedarville University. He personifies Cedarville University. On theory, I'm his boss, and I have authority. I could ask him to do something. But I understand and I know, just because my job title gives me authority for something, that doesn't mean that he's not equal, and let's be honest, he far greater represents this university than I do because he's been here and he's been serving at this university as long as I've been alive. Is he my equal? Absolutely. And deserves my respect and deserves my appreciation. That's the Trinity. That's Jesus and God. It's the relationship between a husband and a wife. It's a reciprocal relationship that says, I respect. Guys, this is it. In Ephesians 5, it tells us to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. We have the harder calling here and we have to do it and do it in the right way and to do it well. What's Paul trying to get across here? A theological principle that says equality that respects authority. If you don't respect authority now, you're gonna have trouble the rest of your life and that's what I want you to get. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that you'd help us just to apply what your word has said to our lives. Uh, Father, I pray that if I've said something that could be taken the wrong way, that you would allow people to forget totally about it. But Lord, that if there's some piece of truth here that would allow them to to live in a better way, that you would allow that to stick for them to think on that and not forget those principles and teachings. Lord, I pray most of all that in all we do, that we will glorify you with our lives and that will be our primary concern in all we do. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.